Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you give us ears to hear, to give us hearts that are conformed to you and your image. Bless us with further knowledge and understanding of your saving work through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're looking at the second hymn of the Gospel of Luke this morning. And so it's the second hymn, really, of the entire New Testament. And it's incredible because it is yet another hymn that is sung to an unborn baby. The focus of this song is to an unborn baby. To appreciate this, we kind of need to appreciate the scene. Zechariah, as we can see earlier in chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel, had when receiving a message of the fact that he would be given a son, scoffed, he doubted, he mocked. And so he was struck with silence. He was struck with a mute reality. And so he had this reality for months and months on end. And here he has been given this miraculous child. And now it's the eighth day. Eight days since the birth of his child. He has not been able to speak yet. He has not been able to say a word. And now this hymn comes time to speak. After he names the child, he makes it clear in writing that the child will be named John. He is given the ability to speak. And what he speaks about, And who he decides to speak to first is not to his wife, is not to his eight-day-year-old child, but Mary most certainly is the reason why we have this account, but to the unborn child in the womb of Mary. And so I just think of that and just how remarkable. This is in one sense the second lullaby that the unborn child, the God-man, Jesus Christ, heard in the womb. And that is a remarkable thing. And I don't think I'll ever have a Christmas in pastoral ministry where I won't seize upon the opportunity to remind us all that this is how the New Testament opens. And so while we live in a world that makes lies about the unborn and the worth of the unborn, we will not have excuse if we know the story of Christmas to go before the Lord and to not be advocates for the unborn. We will not have an excuse if you know the Christmas story. And that's not the heart of the message. That's not where the message will settle on today, but we should appreciate that awesome responsibility and that awesome reality. That one day, when we go before the Lord, it, we already know 
how he places value on the unborn. We are, this is not a non-negotiable in our society. So this is an amazing hymn. You know, my, I, both of my grandmothers struggled to speak at the end of their lives. They would sooner speak through tears because they couldn't say words. Uh, one, it was particularly bad. She was bedridden. Um, I remember feeding her through a syringe around the day, the age of Audrey. For two years, we had a 24-hour rotation of, of cousins of aunts, uncles, of her children, just caring for her. She couldn't move. She couldn't speak. She even lost a daughter during that time, and all she could express were tears. And she was just frozen. Frozen in space and time. And I just remember looking upon her feeble body at that time and just aching aching at how hard I could see in her eyes how badly she wanted to speak. She didn't have that ability. She couldn't speak. And I thought about her in this verse. I thought about her in this passage. Because Zachariah possibly has had nine months of not being able to say anything. And then he's given the ability to speak, and the first thing he speaks is praising the Lord. And I thought about my grandmother, and I thought, she really had an experience like that. That she was a woman of great faith. That her first words, that first gracious relief that she finally got when she could speak again, when she was able to move and have a being to her that wasn't locked up in, in the shell of her failing body. First ability was to praise the Lord. And that's very much what we'll see in Zechariah's emphasis is that he's been given the Spirit of God to speak again, and his, this, through the Spirit of God, he wants to proclaim the salvation of God, the glory of God, the wonder of God. Our being saved has a purpose, and the purpose is to proclaim boldly the goodness of the Lord's salvation. And so what does Zechariah say? What will he first say? Zechariah will choose beautiful words. He will not again focus on his own wife or the miraculous baby, but he considers Mary's unborn babies. Unborn baby. And so the Spirit filled Zechariah, and he begins with proclaiming the salvation of the Lord. He joins the chorus of the voices that declare to the Lord our God, You are good indeed. You are most precious. You are most glorious. Now, right at the start here, a casual reader might think, Oh, this song sounds a lot like a magnif the Magnificat we were in last week. I will say there's actually a subtle difference between these two songs. Mary's song in its literary style and its presentation more closely models the Psalms of Scripture. It has a structure like a hymn of the Psalms. The structure of this hymn, however, is more like the prophets. It's a little bit more like a prophetic hymn. In one sense, the woman, Mary, she sings 
a, a hymn modeled along the songs of praise. The man in Zechariah who was in ministry, who was a minister for the Lord, he will sing a word of prophecy after, modeled after the prophets themselves. And the first word Zechariah sings is, blessed, is, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. R.C. Sproul would love to point out that the word for visit here is from the Greek word tied to, in the modern world, bishop, episkopos. But actually, the ancient idea of the word episkopos is more like a general. A visit from a general. The general is going to visit the troops. He is going to visit the people he oversees. I know we have the W.H. S. Hancock Society. I added an S, didn't I? The W. The W.S. Hancock Society, representative here in Karen. And the story of, of Hancock is that during the Battle of Gettysburg, he is surveying, he's out in front, he's surveying the troops, and he's eventually actually shot. It, that is actually tied into that image of Episcopos, which we now often translate as bishop, but it, it was a warrior king-like individual coming to meet the troops. Coming to rescue. And so that is tied into the imagery of verse 68. And remember that the Old Testament Jew, even John the Baptist in his adulthood, as we can see in Luke chapter 7, will eventually be surprised that Jesus wasn't in his first coming laying to waste the godless leaders that plagued the world, the godless kingdoms, the godless society in a warrior-like fashion. They wanted him to basically be a greater version of Samson that militarily ripped it all down. They wanted a bishop who would call down fire and brimstone and a legion of angels in order to lay waste to the vile enemies of God at work in the world. They believed that the final judgment of God was soon at hand, and yet it wasn't. We, in one sense it was. There was an already, but yet it wasn't. We stand here 2,000 years later in a testimony to the fact that that was not encompassed in the first coming. Actually, the warrior general, he had a greater priority because our greatest priority is not external threats of sin, but it's the internal indwelling realities of sin. Jesus needed to fight, and he did fight, for a righteousness that we could receive. Think of how often we stumble into sin. It's just, it's so frustrating how, how fickle we can be. And for 33 years, our warrior king, our warrior general, this episcopus, he fought against the temptations to sin in order to be able to give to us a righteousness that is not our own, but found in Him. He is an awesome warrior who would not surrender, who would not relent, who would not give in to sin. And that is awesome. And that is how He bestows upon us a covering, an armor that would protect His people from all the consequences of sin. 
And also in the language of redemption here, there are parallels to, with what is being said here to the two collections of verses we'll soon be in, be in in Exodus 3. This song wants to say at the very beginning, just as God delivered the descendants of Moses from hundreds upon hundreds of years of being enslaved in wickedness in Egypt, here a new exodus is about to begin from a greater slavery from through the fruit through of the womb of Mary. And really, everything from verses 68 to 72, an Old Testament Jew would boldly declare that new exodus is coming. And this warrior king is from the line of David, as we see in verse 69. But I don't want to entirely leave verse 68 just yet. Also tied into that word, visits, is this. We've all had those moments in life where we are passive, where we knew the right thing to do and yet we did not do it. We did not act in the way we should. And the beautiful thing about, one of the beautiful things about God visiting us is it shows that He's the God who pursues us. He's the God who comes for us. That He's the God who seeks after us. That salvation does not rest ultimately in us, but it's actually salvation is found in Him coming to us, in Him pursuing us. This warrior king, he fights to save. And notice that it doesn't say God will redeem His people. Does it say that? No, it already declares while Jesus is still in the womb, God has already redeemed his people. God knows the end from the beginning. It's as good as secure. This salvation he grants, this warrior king fights to save, it is assured, it is promised. This is the king of all kings. And because this king brings salvation with him, he should be praised. Putin offers no salvation. Xi offers no salvation. Biden offers no salvation. Trump offers no salvation. On the most important matter over life and death, life eternal with the Lord and death and judgment forever, there is no king in this world who can save you. There is no vaccine in order for you to receive. There is no antidote except to come to this warrior king who is ushering in a new exodus to save us from our sins. And then verse 70 sneaks in there. And there is a point to be found here that is often overlooked when it says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. We grab a hold of this Bible and we forget that it often has long gaps of time. I'm disappointed Bruce Stocking isn't here today because I was going to pick on him because he's a Virginian. But maybe for all of us, if I were to ask you, I mean, maybe let me pick on, who should I pick on? Who wants to be volunteered? Pick on Greg. Greg's a good guy. Greg, what was it like in Jamestown, what was Pocahontas like? What was John Smith like? You want to, yeah, I mean, there's a big gap there, right? There's a big gap in time. And, and you'd almost think, like, you're insulting him. 
We don't realize how big the gap of silence has been from the end of the Old Testament to this time that we have here now. Do you know William Shakespeare was coming out with the newest play called Macbeth more recently than to us in relation than Zechariah was to the last prophet of the Old Testament? Do you know that the Spanish Inquisition was going on? Do you know that Galileo was putting forward scientific theory? And so think of how long that gap is. We don't, you know, we don't think of Will Shakespeare as like our boy or our generation. It's been a long period of time. And actually in verse 70, Zechariah is taking account of this. This has been a long time of darkness, a long time of prophetic silence, and yet a light has come into the world. And this is a marvelous thing. This is a fantastic thing. And so you can see, you soon realize when you grab a hold of this, how a man who experienced months of silence hasn't been able to talk to his wife, hasn't been able to speak a good word to his eight-day-year-old boy, when he finally gets the opportunity to speak, the first thing he needs to do is to praise and address the child who is in the womb. His Lord, his Savior, who has come. And, and, and that's the reality. And I, I think about that. And I know I alluded to that earlier of even my grandmother when I think of it. How wonderful and glorious it was for her to be able to speak again and to praise. The one in who gave relief, gave relief to the dark reality of the final years of her life. And she got to do that once she saw her Savior's face. And Zachariah sees he's in the midst of the presence of the Savior. And so this was a crowning joy and a remarkable moment. And that's why speaking to his wife could wait and speaking to his eight-year-old, eight-day-old son could wait. He wanted first to praise the Lord. And the purpose of this visit by God, what was it, this purpose behind this general's visit? It was so that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This mercy, this salvation is also tied to the promises of our father Abraham. And it's interesting that Zechariah appeals to Abraham because and Abraham's ultimate promise wasn't, was one large family made up of many nations. And so the salvation being heralded here is not just for Israel, but a greater Israel, even the Gentile nations as well. The Old Testament has moments where God brought in people outside the immediate family of Israel, people like Rahab and Ruth, and Jethro, and others, the Ninevites, Nebuchadnezzar, I could go on. But now, in a fuller sense, this general is coming, and he is coming in order to save a great multitude, save many nations, because he has all authority. And that salvation, as we see starting in verse 72, is not just to be a salvation from sin, but a salvation where God lessens sin's dominion over his people. The Heidelberg Catechism in question 158 cites verses 72 through 79 when it asks, 
and then answers the following question. What are the chief benefits that faith receives from Christ? First, one is right with God through faith without any merit of works. So that we're saved by grace alone. We are, we can, we are saved by Christ. But second, by grace without merit, one is regenerated or renewed and is created, as it were, de novo. In Christ, created new in Christ for good works. Not to merit anything, but to show one's thankfulness as the Word of God testifies in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and also Luke chapter 1, verses 72 to 79. That's the Heidelberg Catechism. So the salvation Zechariah is singing about is both a present reality of our being freed from our sins, we are saved from our sins, but also a freedom from our, from by, given by the warrior king that makes us ever less comfortable with sinning and continuing in sin. Both a legal salvation, but also a salvation that allows us to begin fighting against desire to sin. And a gift, and this gift from our deliverer is so that we can begin to love the law. We can begin to prize the law of God that we don't see it as something we don't want to obey, but as something that we actually want to pattern ourselves after. And in both verses 71 and 74, there is a black and white clarity established in the lyrics of this song of praise. We will either follow the world, and if we follow the world, we are enemies with God. Or we will follow the word, and if we follow the word, we will love the yoke of the warrior king. Let me just summarize it. Do you know what this world is in one sense? This world, in one sense, is a dressing room. It is a dressing room. And through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, he has given us robes of righteousness that we can strive to put on, that we can decide to adorn ourselves with. Or we can follow the pattern of worldly wisdom in, that dressing room, in this dressing room and say, I want to take my wisdom from the world's philosophies. I want to take my dressing my clothing from what the world says is good. And the Bible's very clear about these two kinds of clothing. The clothes that the world offers, the adornment that the world offers, it considers filthy rags. And yet the clothing that we have through Christ, it is beautiful and good and gracious clothing. And someday the Lord our God will open that door in that dressing room and how are we going to be adorned? What clothing will we have put on and put into practice in our lives? It is the most crucial matter for us to think about. You know, if you thought of, for instance, a soldier in World War II, what would you think of a soldier in World War II, an American soldier who one day decided to put on a Nazi uniform and start shooting Americans? What would you think of such a soldier? You think he's a traitor. 
He deserves the death penalty. He deserves judgment. That is a most awful betrayal. And yet, when we subjectively excuse sin, when we embrace the patterns of wisdom of the world, we're in one sense saying, oh, no one will mind if you put on a, an SS hat. No one will mind if little Billy wears a Nazi armband. No. That's, that, that idea is repulsive before the Lord. And yet, if we live as people not concerned about what the Bible calls us to be, but rather concerned about what the world wants us to be, we are people that in the dressing room of life are putting on a uniform that is disgusting before God. And we should acknowledge that. Christian, the salvation this warrior king provides is fully sufficient for those moments of sin where we do fail. But it's also so that we might further get dressed in the clothing of righteousness the Lord desires us to wear. And then after all we've covered about this baby in the womb from verses 67 to 75, Zechariah, once known for doubting God, takes time to praise and to prophesy about the miracle of the son that he has been given by God in verse 76 and 77. Zechariah receives a prophetic glimpse of the purpose of John the Baptist's own ministry. And we know from Luke chapter 1, verse 32, Jesus has already been called the Son of the Most High. Now here John is called the Prophet of the Most High. And as and this prophet's commission will be as this warrior king will visit his people, crushing sin and evil where he so wills, you, John, you, my little John, get to prepare a pathway for him to walk. In the language Zechariah uses in verse 76, it's clear, God's going to do the traveling. God's going to do the reaching. God's going to go from home to home, from city to city, and ultimately... If we think of the Great Commission, God in the big picture here is going to go nation to nation. But John, he's singing now to his baby. This has the smallest of parts to play, but what an honor to play a small part in the infinitely greater role this warrior king has set in motion. This child will get to prepare the battlefield as the Lord marches to and fro. And I would also say that we too have a promise in an ultimate sense in that great commission that we too are to prepare the way. We too are to cast seed and ultimately God decides where he will go through the power of the Spirit to produce life. We also in one sense have this commission. And in verse 77 we see the warrior king will have a purpose to his march. It will be to give knowledge and salvation to all to all is it all people or all his people? To his people. And so to receive the forgiveness of sins. So part of this king's march is to give his people a personal assurance of the fact that they have forgiveness of sins through him. And so this is where I ask the following question. Do you know your sins are forgiven in Christ today? 
Do you know your sins are forgiven in Christ today? If so, then that's actually fulfillment of this verse. That's actually your warrior king who has come to you and given you that saving knowledge. That no matter how bad it gets, no matter what you have done in past, present, or future, your warrior king has come to you and given you the saving assurance of Christ. There are, you know, there are denominations that want to keep people in fear. And they treat the salvation of sin like remission. Like a cancer that can return. That you can always like lose your salvation. You're always on the precipice. There's nothing of that in this passage. It's a full assurance. It's a full given assurance. It's established in God. So if you know the Lord has come to you, if you know the Lord has given you saving knowledge of the purpose of His coming, and being a sacrificial offering for our sins. That gift, God has given you that gift, so you don't treat His work like a cancer that could return. His salvation of sins is something that's, that could come back to bite you. But He actually wants you to rest and have complete assurance, complete confidence. That's why this warrior king fought for you. And then we get to the last two verses. We see the tenderness of this warrior king. Let me just reread verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, throughout all this hymn, Zechariah has been talking about the present reality of this warrior's visit. But in this verse, it has in view a future event. And the word here in the Greek translated as sunrise, in one sense, a more wooden translation would be a heavenly body rising. And I wouldn't be the first pastor or theologian to suggest the possibility that Zechariah is prophetically hinting at the resurrection at the end of this song. That he is looking forward to that moment where this baby still encased in a womb would eventually offer himself unto the Lord and three days later rise from the grave. And I actually think that verse 79 is what most convinces me this is what verse 78 is getting at. This sunrise that he is speaking about here will have a remarkable twofold byproduct. It will provide light in two kinds of situation. I want you to think about this tree for the moment. Here we go. This tree. So fun, it has a stepping stool. What Zechariah is envisioning is that the Lord our God, His coming, this warrior king's coming, is a light that will shine in two situations. The first situation actually is like a Job-esque situation. I believe it's Job chapter 12. It might be verse 22 that it's alluding to, but it's that kind of darkness, that kind of despair that happens in life when situations are hard and grim and kind of like the ones that my grandmother faced the last two years of her life. Those kinds of situations that, that this warrior king in his rising, in this heavenly body's rising, would give such a light that in such moments, if you would just 
Behold and look upon that rising. You would see a light that others don't see, and that light would give you encouragement, and that light would give you peace, and that light would give you hope. But then there is a second thing about this light that has come. And the second thing about this light that has come is even in that final hour, even in that last hour, when our bodies, our mortal bodies will go no further and we freeze and they betray us a final time and we are surrendered into death, that at that moment we can look at the rising of this warrior king and we see a light that others don't see, we have a hope that others don't see, and we have a greater song of praise to sing. That's how he closes his song. And that's a good and glorious saving message. And that's an amazing song that he has just sung to a baby in the womb. And a baby who would be the lamb who was slain, who takes away the sins of the world. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you believe upon him, the warrior's given you that belief so that you have full assurance and all that you're forgiven from sin, but also in all the dark times in life and all the hard times and the times we want to doubt and we want to cast ourselves into darkness and to gloom and, and, and to sorrow. He has come in order to give us a vision of a rising a rising that provides us hope. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the light of the world. The reality is when we do struggle, when we do despair, when we do sin, when we do find ourselves in situations that are hard and difficult, when even we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Lord. It is easy to be worried about the darkness of it all. We thank you for the child who would one day rise to give us the hope of salvation, the light everlasting in which we can look upon in all those difficult moments and all those hard times and to find relief from life's griefs and sorrows. We praise you for the gift of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.